Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Hello, listeners. This week, I speak with Joan and I about his transition to a leadership position at the Jewish Museum right after the initial COVID hit. We compare and contrast higher ed with fundraising in the arts, the dangerous future of free content, the retention of members in the museum space, and using membership as a tool for prospecting. Jonah does a great job talking us through his work and what makes his institution special. Jonah and I joined the Jewish Museum staff in 2015 and has previously served as its Director of Major Gifts, Senior Director of Individual Giving, and Acting Deputy Director of Development. He was appointed to Chief Development Officer in February 2020. In this role, he oversees the planning, management, and strategy of the museum's overall fundraising efforts, which include membership, special events, institutional giving, major gifts, and plan giving. Jonah has over 20 years of arts experience, 15 of which have been in fundraising. Prior development roles include positions at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, Columbia Journalism School, Columbia School of the Arts, Opera America, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, among other institutions. He has also worked as a consultant for several nonprofit organizations. A former classical singer, Jonah earned his Bachelor and Master of Music degrees at Lawrence University and New England Conservatory, respectively. He was appointed to Bronx Community Board 4 in 2019 by Bronx Borough President Ruben Diaz Jr. and serves on the Executive Committee, Economic Development Committee, and directs social media strategy. Let's get started. Jonah, welcome to The Debrief. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, thank you also for doing this for the field. I think it's really important, and I'm so glad you're doing it. You're welcome. You and I discovered that we had Columbia in common. You're currently at the Jewish Museum, but you have higher ed experience and have worked at a few other places. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I was at Columbia for just under four years, first at the School of the Arts, and then at the Journalism School to raise money for... Uh, the New York World, which is a media outlet that was sort of akin to ProPublica, but covering New York City state and government. Very, very cool. And both of those schools are two of my favorites. They're what we consider smaller within Mm -hmm. university. So it must not have been huge culture shock to go from that to the Jewish Museum. Uh, No, I think that being part of this gigantic multi-billion dollar enterprise that is Columbia. It never really felt like that at the School of the Arts and the mm-hmm. Journalism School. I felt very much on a small team, but with the uh, benefits of being part of a really sophisticated uh, big shop, you know, all the trainings, learning from other colleagues. Last season you had Jeff Richard on and he was somebody mm-hmm. I always bounced ideas off of. So that is just one of the great benefits of being in a big shop. But I liked the smaller feel too. Yeah, so you are the Chief Development Officer at the Jewish Museum. Can you start with giving us a sense of size and scope of your team so we can have a good idea of your context and where you're coming from? Sure. Well, I mean, oddly, it's actually a lot bigger than the two teams I was at uh, with at Columbia. Um, not as big as Lincoln Center, which is where I went right after Columbia. So at Lincoln Center, our team was 41 people. Uh, for development. Here at the Jewish Museum, we're at 18, which is still a really, I think, really healthy size. 
Um, and then we also include membership. And I know at some of the bigger museums, like the Whitney or something like that, membership is bifurcated out and reports or is part of the marketing tree. And that's how it was actually at the MFA Boston when I was there. But I like having membership in our circle because it is such a great pool of people to get to know and they are the heart of the museum, right? So I love hearing those stories and I love collaborating closely with membership. Yeah, so my understanding was that membership was almost akin to the annual fund. In some places, and I think others see it more as a direct marketing, and certainly the strategies that they use for fundraising are more like direct marketing, you know, using McVicker, <laughs> doing the call centers, hiring out um, people seasonally to make those costs to make sure people get their dual or family or out of town memberships. But I collaborate really closely with our director of membership. She came from MoMA prior to this. I think she was there for about a decade. And I have a lot to learn from her. I love seeing it, but I also then, I like looking into her pool and seeing who might be interested in getting involved in a deeper way, so. Do you tend to find leads from that pool? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And so that's I did, the I, argument to have them in, fun, in development, right? Yes, yes, because they are annual donors and they're certainly, um, you know, planned giving donors. And mm -hmm. obviously the messaging is very different and the way we um, interact with them is different. Maybe it's not as individualized, but really important relationships come out of there. And I will say like receiving notes from the members during the darkest days of the pandemic lifted my spirits. You haven't, wow. you haven't lived until you've gotten an envelope with no note in it, but just three $5 bills or oh like, you know, or a post-it note that says you need more money. It's just, it's the most heartfelt and sweetest. I know every museum thinks that they have the best members, but I truly think ours are the best for a couple reasons. The retention level just from sheer metrics is incredibly high for museums. I think it's 80 or 80 something percent. The membership year after year? Yeah, yeah, the retention wow. stays so high. And um, this is a story, you know, I told our trustees during um, some reporting out about how we're doing. I mean, the membership, I think, the temperature of the membership is such a key indicator on how you're doing as an institution, right, in your mission. Because we're a public institution, we work to serve them. and. So to have them stay year after year is great. To get the kinds of messages that you did about being like, you're a place that's essential to our well-being, even though you're not essential workers, you are essential to our spiritual well-being. It's just, it's really moving. And this uh, a summer ago, not this last summer, but the one before, we had a blockbuster show open. It was the Leonard Cohen show, it was wildly popular. But then flash forward a year when we were closed and had really no, nothing to offer and no promises that we could make, you know, membership only dipped about five points, which is kind of wow. crazy thinking about it to go from blockbuster to absolutely no exhibition offerings. Uh, we did have public programs, so that kept a lot of people on the hook. Yeah, it just it shows that the I think the Jewish Museum members are here for something more. It's more than a museum to most of them. Right. Yeah. So I've been very grateful for that throughout this whole last year. Yeah. So you said you've been at the museum for about five years and you've been promoted during that time, mm -hmm. right? I think I'm in title four, but- Wow, okay. For one of our board members, board meetings, uh, someone's like, what are we calling you now? And <laughs> I said, temp to perm, seasonal, whatever, doesn't really matter. <laughs> I've hit my last stop, so 
Uh, yes, it is current. The current incarnation is chief development officer. Well, I want to hear about what it was like to be promoted to lead during such an incredible time of change. But I also want to hear about your organic rise within the museum and how that happened, whether it truly was just natural or if you set that site for yourself. Like when you came in as major gift officer, did you imagine that you would be chief development officer in not too long? No, not at all. <laughs> and um, to your first question, what was it like to take over? I mean, February was looking great, I thought, <laughs> you know, when I got promoted. Well, it was, was starting uh, to get a little bit scary. Yeah, but I was like, February, 2020 is going to be my year. I think a lot of people right. thought that, you know, and then March came. So we actually had our annual fundraiser on March 3rd. And yes, the, the talk about COVID then was at a low boil. Like there was anxiety yeah. about it. There were a lot of like, you know, this could be a lot, New York's last party, ha ha ha, in all caps. Like people it wouldn't still felt, it. Yeah. yeah. But not, and then we closed on March 13th. So it truly was the last party in New York. At least the producers of our um, uh, annual gala, David Stark's team, was like, that was one of the last ones. Wow. Um, in terms of the rise within the organization, no, totally organic. I wasn't expecting it. I came here from Lincoln Center. I was at Lincoln Center. I was called assistant director of major gifts, but ultimately it was, in terms of functionality, it was a major gift officer role. And I uh, hadn't managed a team before, and that was something I wanted to try. I was starting to feel a little bit like a lone wolf after a few years of being a major gift officer. Like, I really, I love frontlining. I, I, I have so much fun. I could talk about it for days. But I knew I had to, I wanted to try management. And someone always has to be the first, right, to give you that opportunity. Exactly. So I got a call from my um, predecessor, Elise Boxbaum, saying, you know, is that something you want to try here? And so I did. And then the team, the first team I worked with, you know, there were three direct reports. And that was I gotta say, it was like, you know, I read all the Harvard Business Review books, you know, I bought the little set on how to manage, um, took lots of careful notes before I started. But it was, it was very alarming walking in on day one and having people rely on you or want your counsel. But luckily I walked in with a, the, the, the current team has so much depth in it. You know, the tenures range from one year to over 20. Mm. Um, so I have a lot of people that bounce ideas off of. So tell us about how you spend your time. If you could possibly put them into percentages, how much time you spent with the board versus donors, operations, management. Going back to Columbia, um, and I'm not trying to do a commercial for Columbia, but I will say it was really the greatest training I've ever had in my career. One of the things I loved about it and thought was interesting and this is where sales and fundraisings, I think, really diverge, is that even a team leader has to carry a portfolio, right? There's no one who is, like, you've got to be um, sort of player coach. And I think that was one thing I took with me from Columbia, is that I wanted to make sure wherever I landed, even if I ended up in a management position one day, I wanted to carry a portfolio myself. One, it keeps me honest. Two, I think it keeps me empathetic to the people who frontline pretty much all day because it's so easy as a manager to just say, oh, just try again or come up with a new strategy or mm -hmm. 
oh, I'm sorry, they were, you know, tough on you, but you just gotta not take it personally. Like, you know, it's a very easy thing to say, but if you're not living it, you can get so distanced from the difficulty of the work. My portfolio is about 130 people, and then there's the team of 18, and then I staff. That's pretty big, 130. Yeah, it's probably too big, <laughs> but, but 40 of that is the board. Um, so percentage-wise, I would say probably three-quarters admin back office, 25% frontlining. Okay. So more frontlining than you might expect for this role, but, but I'd like that. Uh, Did you get resistance with that, or was, it, was the job already set up that way? No resistance because, um, you know, the director of museum and I talked really candidly early on. She's like, you know, that obviously the frontlining piece is something that you really enjoy. So don't get rid of that. Okay. However, <laughs> there is more back office work to do now, right? The, the board, uh, the committee staffing, so the committee on trustees, uh, development committee, and even if I'm not staffing a committee, I may have to report. And that takes obviously time to prepare to go to finance, to go to the I don't know, arts acquisitions or board exhibitions committee. I mean, there's just so many committees. So that all takes time too. In terms of direct reports though, so even though there's 18 on our team, I don't, I still, I've kept it at the sort of whatever Harvard Business Review said, five. I think I see five regularly. Okay. Um, five staff members regularly. And that would be my assistant who I see daily, our head of uh, research and strategy, and then head of events, membership, and then institutional and major gifts. So that's the five weeklies I have. That sounds really solid. Yeah. <laughs> so what has been new since the pandemic and what would you like to keep that's been new? Honestly, a lot of the work is really the same. <laughs> I mean, I meet with civic leaders, I see if their interests square with our vision and our work and I go from there. I miss the physicality of being in the galleries with people, of course, um, but some are willing to come in. And that's the pivot to frontlining with a mask on has been kind of a funny thing to get used to because so much of our job is to read facial cues and body language. And then when you, oh cut, off, when you cut off the most expressive part of your body, <laughs> it's very I hard. I didn't think about that. I yeah. haven't heard anyone talk about visits with a mask. How interesting. Also, if you happen to wear glasses like I do, you have the fun handicap of like seeing barely through. Like, <laughs> the glasses fog. are fogged. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's hilarious. And, you know, we have a show up right now by this great artist, Jonathan Horowitz, and it touches on anti-Semitism, xenophobia, bigotry, racism. It's a really tough but relevant show for the times that we live in. And I can't always tell what people are thinking if they're not really explicit verbally. Uh, so anyway, that's part of the challenge. I mean, obviously, I think one of the things, and you've heard this before, um, we want to keep the connectivity via Zoom and electronically. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think committee attendance has ever been higher. I don't think board meeting attendance has ever been higher. And obviously, a tour that you'd have to cap at 20 in real life can go up to 60 or 1,000, you know, depending on the content. So that's all very good. I'm not so sure we'll be able to monetize all of that just because you have scale in a program, you know, a public program doesn't necessarily mean that all these people are going to convert to being members. I've, I've likened it to, and this is probably just because of my time at the journalism school, but I think museums are figuring out, so much like the, you know, technology 
revolution unfortunately decimated a lot of local newspapers because in the early days people were giving away the news for free and then when you tried to put up a paywall up you know the psychology that all news should be free had already been seated i think museums and arts in general are trying to figure out what's the balance right now of content that should be out there for free just to keep people engaged and at what point do you start charging people because no one can exist like this <laughs> if we're just giving so everything for free what's your philosophy on that Oh, I think we should be charging. <laughs> I think we for should. For everything. I think um, some should be premium access. Uh, you know, like members get it this time before mm -hmm. the general public. But yeah, I think we. I think it'd be great if the field was in lockstep because otherwise, I think we're gonna face what journalism faced in that people will get used to the idea that all these world class institutions are giving away programming and content we're free and, and then when somebody starts saying well I'd like to charge $25 for this art history class they'll just flip the screen to some other place that's given Find something else yeah so I think we're in a precarious moment because this yeah. isn't changing. this isn't changing after COVID people are going to want both versions they're going to want a world-class in-person experience and they're going to want highly produced highly tailored Netflix worthy, <laughs> you know, con video content. And that's just not a lot what a lot of us are set up to do in this second. And you're foreseeing that as a challenge in the next six to 12 months. So. Yeah, yeah. I think the future though, like people are gonna want their arts content online or in person, however they choose. In March and April, there was a forgiveness for some shaky camera footage from your bedroom with like a drape, like a draped, horrible green screen it was like you know like bad al jazeera tv in the early days you know yes. it was like on someone. um and we thought that was cute and boy they're sure trying and then a month later i tell you and i've said this to again i think david stark uh, who's in special events uh he, he you know his firm makes all these amazing galas they partnered with robin hood and their gala had tina fey it had the empire state building like blinking the robin hood lights in synchronicity with music. And I was like, well, they just ruined it for all of us. <laughs> you know? So gone were the days oh. where anything less than, you know, a huge celebrity and high production value was going to be acceptable. So we watched that with both, you know, envy and horror, but also happiness because it was wildly successful for them. But it seems like, cause I've been thinking about the, the similarities and differences between higher ed and if, let's say Princeton were to put on something amazing, it wouldn't necessarily impact us. We might hear about it, but it wouldn't make us feel the way you just described. Whereas it seems like in the cultural institution world, if someone one-ups you, it actually impacts your work. Yeah, you know, especially for art museum. Well, no, for all the arts. I mean, we're visual, right? And mm -hmm. that counts, that's part of it, right? There's nothing that we believe that nothing can tell a story as quickly as a picture or an image. Mm -hmm. And so when you see someone come out of the gate so quickly into a crisis that has just figured it out amidst the chaos, you're both in shock. You know, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's inspiring. Um, and it kind of keeps us, it keeps us going and inspires us. But you know, thinking about the other question you asked about like what I want to keep and what's changed uh, yes. One thing I don't want to keep is the like the delay in administrative flows. So obviously because of social distancing, we can't have as many people in the office. So 
we all and you're in the office right now right I'm in, the, I'm in the office right now I come three or four days a week um but I will say I think it was my counterpart at the Whitney who said early on that she was talking to her team and I love this phrase she said team the work is hard but it's not complicated right we know what to do it is about connecting with one family member one member at a time so we have a couple things in, in our way now right in terms of not being able to be, be with people in person, but the work is still the same. We know what's mm -hmm. expected of us. So just get to it, you know? And I loved that, that attitude because the work is hard, right? Now I feel like we're at beck and call all the time because we're living at work most days. Mm -hmm. There's no boundaries. Yeah, for me, it almost just feels like the fun part was removed. Cause the fun <laughs> part for me was the travel and the meeting of the donors and you know, where are we going to meet? What's it going to be like? And now that's, it's just a Zoom, which can still be exciting, but it's the joy of it for me was the in-person. Well, one thing, you know, yeah, having Zoom, a discovery meeting by Zoom, of course, is not nearly as interesting, but it's also strangely more intimate because you're already in their home. And a lot of what True. we do in the museum world is, of course, show each other art and so i have asked some people if they're comfortable to walk me around their home i'm glad to hear that and that is a side of them i wouldn't probably have gotten to see until like a year or years into a relationship but on a first meeting to get to walk through their nursery or to walk through um the halls where maybe the favorite photograph they got from their grandfather like that is really deep stuff really fast and that wouldn't have been possible if I just did the usual, meet me at the museum, then we'll eat lunch downstairs. Yes, so I have heard several fundraisers tell me that that makes them nervous or uncomfortable. Can you tell us quite literally, like word for word, how you invite that experience? If you've probably been able to tell, I'd like to keep a sort of buoyant atmosphere. And Love the buoyancy. Yeah, I will we will have at some point been talking about a show and I'll say, hey, this isn't fair. I've been showing you amazing art for this whole time. Uh, it's your turn. What do you, I see something. And most people, especially in the art world, have <laughs> curated their Zoom background. And I can see that there is something of great interest in the back. I was like, tell what's me- What's that behind you? Yeah, tell me about <laughs> that. You know, for you, I'd be like, what's the story of that lamp, Catherine? Who gave it to you? <laughs> You know, you know, and, and it's like, okay, what else you got? What else are you collecting? And usually, and I've never had anybody, because hopefully if I've done the setup, right, we're meeting with like-minded people who want to talk about interesting art and objects that they care about. Mm -hmm. I usually don't have to press too hard. And are a lot of, in these scenarios, have these been in New York City apartments or are you doing visits with people across the country? Um, all over, I think pretty much all over the world. There was one in Israel one uh, a couple weeks ago. You know, another added advantage, of course. And it's it's this actually reminds me of another Columbia story. So there was a monthly round prospect roundtable, and the case was a planned giving case. Uh, you don't have to use this for the purpose of this podcast, but you'll just find this funny because um, there were seven family members involved in an estate. They lived in five different time zones. And I suggest, they were like, any ideas? You know, so like someone's like, oh, we don't know what to do. And I said, have you tried doing it all on Skype? And you could all just connect that way. This was in 2000, uh, 2012 or something. And everyone stared at me like I was a crop circle. Like, that's a dumb idea. Like, you know, like, 
no one's going to do a donor meeting on Skype and certainly not seven people, you know, and now I'm vindicated. Absolutely. Yes. The way we probably, I mean, it's not like this technology is new. Like we could have been doing this for a decade. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, no, it's true. I had done a couple of meetings over Skype. I don't think I'd ever done Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. So have you been able to start any new Major Gift Plus conversations or any new asks since March? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I will say, again, it was really great. So a couple days after we shut down, I reached out to about, you know, 10 or 15 museum development directors in the New York area, because especially in the early days, the disease was so localized. I wanted to compare like to like. There were some museums in California who were interested, but at that time, New York was really the epicenter. You know, I reached out and I don't come from the art world. So these were cold calls, but I just, you know, found development director at Whitney, Met, Guggenheim, wherever. And said, do you think it would be helpful to share news that we could use in the weeks going forward every Friday on Zoom? And almost everybody said yes. So that's one thing I would like to continue going forward. That's fabulous. And, and and people aren't like showing off, like people are being very honest, like we are, mm-hmm. are your membership things happening like this? You know, like we square real, real facts in real time, which has been very helpful. There, when the question came like, is it too soon to ask again? Of course, every fundraiser at every organization was wondering that, but I would say most of the museums, we agreed that, you know, we gave it a rest for a week or two after the closures to get our head straight, but then mm-hmm. we continued forward. You know, the messaging changed, of course. It wasn't about show X, Y, and Z. Uh, But to answer your question, yes, new conversations have absolutely started about almost everything you can imagine. The board, we had three board members, I think, join during the shutdown, uh, which was amazing. Yeah. Uh, And I jokingly, I said to them, I was like, are you sure you want to do this right now? I I feel bad that like a lot of what this is supposed to be, a fun and joyful in-person experience you're not going to get. People, certainly institutional funders are very positive to talk about shows in the future. And perversely, this has actually helped in some ways because this gives me more time to raise money for certain shows. So if you think of the art world as a supply chain, you know, loans from place to place are kind of stuck in time right now. So as long as we all delay our calendars by six or 12 months, then that supply chain has not been disrupted. And okay. that buys me six more months to fundraise. Yeah, and to prepare. The only thing that would make me nervous about that is that you just don't know when. Yes, there's the transnational trade of goods, of course, is still up in the air. But um, in general, I can say like, looks like show X is going to be six months from the date that we initially talked about. Mm-hmm. And we have this conversation. And, you know, people are open to it. So that group that you got together of your peers, do you have a name for it? (laughs) I think we call it group therapy in like uh, April and May. That's what I called it. (laughs) Selfishly, it was more for me, like initially as like a gut check. And then I've, you know, truly become friends. And I suddenly have like 10 or 15 new smart people in my life to test my assumptions. I'm so surprised that that didn't exist before. I know, it's embarrassing, right? <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible excellent, even just for your successor. You know, and that was something I thought that came pretty naturally because I'd been in Opera America in 2008 to 2010, and that's 
you know, for those of you who don't know, it's the the trade national sort of trade association for North American opera. And I was in development then too. And that's what we did all the time. I was constantly talking to other development professionals from around the country. So when this hit, I realized I didn't have a, I didn't have a panic button, you know, so I'm in this once in a century pandemic. The next step is what again? <laughs> and then I, I realized this was a gap for us and, and people were really generous. Yeah. To, do you all acknowledge your differences and similarities? Because one thing I think is so fascinating is that each cultural institution really has its own personality and its history really impacts yeah. its reputation. And business model. I mean, we all have the word museum in our titles, but we are completely different business models. And that's been interesting to find out who I'm really like. So who was that or what was that? Uh, I'm trying to think of the Morgan. Because the, the Frick? Morgan, um, not so much the Frick, but you know, the ones you read about in the Times all the time are like the Met, Guggenheim, places that have a huge part of their pie as earned revenue. In the case of the Tenement Museum, like tourist traffic. And they make a ton off of rentals and the shop and the restaurant. And you know, and for better or for worse, that's just never been our story at the Jewish Museum. And so I was more like the smaller places that had a very loyal, deep base not heavily reliant on tourists, but a really a, a, a healthy endowment relative to the size of their expenditures. And so to I then go to them, that was interesting to have sidebars with them and say like, oh, are you able to launch this right now? I'm sure you're having the same sort of thoughts about uh, cuts that we are. Instead of trying, yeah, and comparing myself to the Met does, does no good. Well, I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago we had the CEO of the Museum of the City of New York. Yes. Was that one of your peers or is that also different? Yes, they participate and my counterpart there, Keith, has become a great friend too throughout all That's of them. That's great. They have a similar setup geographically, <laughs> psychically, emotionally, you know, so that's that's also very helpful. Well, I'm, I'm loving your positive energy here. You're making it seem <laughs> hopeful. You know, I mean, not that it's all doom and gloom, but. No, I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I mean, we certainly have had our battered and bruised days, but, you know, I've been telling members like, you know, we've been around 118 years. We're going to make it through this, you know, development team hasn't stopped working since March. You know, we just knew what to do. And I think that that's been a blessing though. Well, thank you so much for sharing what you've been going through and a little bit about your personal story. I would love to end with my signature question, which is what do you know for sure? Uh, 2020 was the longest year of my 41 years on this planet, but I assume <laughs> you meant this question related to fundraising. Um, this is, I don't know what this is apropos, of, but it's something I think a lot about in terms of fundraising is that everyone's relationship to money is deeply personal that money is not this cold abstraction. And so the work that we naturally do, especially when we're frontlining, but just even day to day, they get prompts discussions about family, friends, anxiety, personal legacy. And to do our work really well, especially right now, you have to be really sensitive to all that. And remember that when they're sharing stories with you or conversations that, that's, that makes them really vulnerable and getting to know someone at that level is a really big privilege. Well, thank you so much, Jonah. Thank you so much. Although Jonah and I have never formally worked together, 
In some ways, it felt as if we had, knowing that we have the shared Columbia connection. Thank you for tuning in this week and learning more about museum fundraising, how they are coping with the COVID reality, and new ways of looking at fundraising. Please tune in next week for the final episode of the season. I cannot wait to share with you my thoughts and some of the things that I've heard back from all of you about closing out this season, closing out the year, and thinking about what's ahead. See you then.